a Podcast One production. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Every week we tackle something that is going on in the world, an international political disaster or thereabouts or just something interesting that's happening somewhere in the world. And often these situations can be quite complex, so there is no one better than this man sitting in front of me more than 1.5 metres away, social distancing appropriately. <laughs> Dr. Keith Suter, to break this stuff down because you are a world-renowned expert on international relations, three PhDs. That's why we've got you involved with this podcast. Uh, myself, I'm Kate Mack. I've been producing and working television and radio for many, many years. It's a pleasure as well to work with you, Keith, because you break down a lot of things I'm interested in as well. So today, in extraordinary times, being the times of the coronavirus and... <sighs> hugely unorthodox times, we're mm. going to talk about the origins of money because at the moment, not the origins of money so much, but we've got a government that's printing a lot of money, but we're being told not to use money. So we're looking at why money is important, why it makes the world go round, and what is going on in this particular climate where we're getting these mixed messages. Keith. Yep, right. Well, it's interesting you talk about money because money is not necessarily the same as wealth. So that's why you get financial geniuses who could say, I could lose all of my money today and I could still become wealthy because they've got things other than money to play around with. So it's social capital. In other words, their connections is their creativity in how they go about things. So there's a whole lot of other stuff as to why people become wealthy, which is not necessarily connected to money. But when you look at money itself, um, money um, has evolved over the thousands of years. So in the very beginning, money was simply based on a commodity. So salary comes from the word salt, and that's how Roman soldiers were paid. They were paid in salt. And then from that, you then evolve into this word salary. So in the very beginning, you had salt or you had gold, you had silver. It's interesting to note that uh, at Christmas, when we think of the wise people bringing the uh, three presents to Jesus, the amount of gold that one of them would have brought would, in theory, buy as much today as it would would have bought 2,000 years ago. Gold maintains its value. Not that I'm recommending gold. I'm not licensed to give financial advice. But it is interesting that gold has been this continuous thread throughout much of uh, uh, human history as a way of storing wealth. So with um, money, you need it as a way of storing your wealth and also of exchanging the wealth. So if you're relying on commodities, then basically if I'm, say, a person who makes shoes and you grow food, I supply shoes to you, you supply food to me. It's not a particularly good way of trying to run an economy. So a few centuries ago, we moved from what's called commodity money to representative money. In other words, um, gold and silver were seen as particularly worthwhile. So salt fell by the wayside, no longer used (laughs) as a way of salary or grain or whatever, only gold and silver, and now basically just basically gold. That, so the second form of money was representative money. So this would be a person carrying notes or bills. We, would in the, we tend to talk about notes. The note saying that whoever is carrying this bit of paper, they are entitled to a certain amount of gold, right? So that's the basis that, of which you carry notes around with you. The, the bits of paper are not valuable in themselves, but they represent money that is being held by someone. Now, 
It used to be the banks, individual banks, used to issue their own notes. So you'd therefore have great fun if you were shopping in Sydney and there were a number of banks and a number of currencies. It got very confusing. And so in the 20th century, generally speaking, what has happened is that you get, as in the United States, what's called the 14th Amendment, you get one authority to produce one currency, which everybody accepts within the United States. And the same with Australia. So there's now only one currency uh, which is recognised in this country. And the Reserve Bank? And the Reserve Bank produces it, exactly. And so uh, that money, particularly in the United States, was backed by gold. And America became the centre of global finance. So it used to be Britain. You know, we used to talk about something being as safe as the Bank of England because their pounds were backed by the gold and silver reserves of the Bank of England. Britain went bankrupt because of two world wars. So the United States took over the job of having the major currency in the world. So we moved from pound sterling across to US dollars. Can I just quickly get you to explain, and I know you slightly went it, skimmed over it, but who decided that gold had to be the most expensive commodity? I think that gold has proved its worth in the sense that you can dig up gold today as coins and they're perfectly preserved. Now, you go back to salt and the salt loses its saltiness after a, a certain amount of time and it gets moist, whereas you could have, as we still do, we come across, um, in fact, on the west coast of Australia, there are still Dutch gold coins on the beach if you know where to look. Uh, by the way, I don't take them because they're now claimed by the Australian government. But, but you've got gold coins that remained there. There was a very famous wreck where the person looked over the cliff and looked down on what he called a carpet of silver. So the fellow, um, this was a Dutch wreck, he had come across it as an anthropologist, noticing Indigenous people in that part of Western Australia on the coast had blonde hair and blue eyes. So what had happened is that when this Dutch ship crashed into the coastline of Western Australia 300 years ago, some of the sailors survived, they clambered up the beach, they then lived with Indigenous and, and then, in a sense, gave their genes, so to speak, to the local Indigenous community, whereas the Indigenous were not interested in the silver. Remember, this is why we moved to this representative currency, because if you're an Indigenous person, you're not going to carry around a bag of gold. It weighs something. It's too heavy to carry around. And so that's why in other countries we moved to what's called the representative currency. And so you have a bit of paper. And so the currency that we use is backed by gold. It's called the gold standard. And so because the gold lasts for thousands of years, it's rare, it's difficult to get at. I've been told, I don't believe this, but I do quote the statistic when I'm giving talks on gold. All the gold ever mined in the world could, in theory, be stacked inside the quadrangle at the University of Sydney. And the pile of gold would just be barely visible above the clock tower. I don't believe that, but this is the statistic that I keep being given. You know, people talk about a small number of Olympic pool size amounts of, uh, of, of gold there is. It's actually been dug out of the ground. See, gold is a very rare commodity. Melbourne had this gold boom. Remember the Victorian gold rush? Um, Ballarat. Ballarat, exactly. And, in fact, you can go to Ballarat and you can go to the Goldfields town, which is mm. preserved there on Sovereign Hill. And Melbourne became per capita the richest city in the world because of all the gold in the 1870s and the 1880s. It was the place to be. I tell my American students that one of the ways you could display your wealth in Melbourne at that time 
was to buy blocks of ice from Boston at Warren Ponds. It would be wrapped up in straw, put on a sailing ship and sent to Melbourne. And so when you're having a dessert, you can boast that you'd bought the ice from that developing country called the United States. That's the wealth of Melbourne. Wow. (laughs) Who who knew our history? (laughs) So that's gold. Then we had the representative currency. So Britain originally was the basis of the gold standard. Before that, of course, the Dutch and the French, et cetera. And then because of World War II, Britain is broke. And so the United States take it on. The United States then says every $35 that you have, if you're a central bank, we will give you an ounce of gold. So that was the basis of the gold standard. But over the years from 1944, which is when the system started, until 1971, the Americans devalued their currency. They printed extra dollars. In effect, the phrase was, it's not particularly elegant, they had dollar diarrhoea. And so countries were saying, we are drowning in dollars, we'd much rather have the gold. And of course, the Americans didn't have the gold, so technically they were bankrupt. Now, I've got to say to you as a private citizen, don't you write checks if you don't have the money in the bank account because that's actually a criminal offence. The US government came off the gold standard in 1971. So why did they do that? Well, because they needed the extra money to finance the Vietnam War. They needed the money. The government, print, in effect, printed the extra money. Uh, they put the more money into circulation to pay for the soldiers, et cetera, and the military equipment. Um, and, the, and technically, the United States went broke in 1971. We don't publicise that because it gets people scared. Look at what we've seen with the coronavirus and the panic buying of toilet paper. If people knew that they were the United States, the centre of the global currency, had gone broke, they would have been very worried. But it meant that we moved from... So remember, we started with a commodity currency like salt or gold. Then we moved to a representative currency, which was a note of paper signifying that if you're carrying this bit of paper, you are entitled to a certain amount of gold or previously that gold and silver. We're now into a third era of money called fiat money. Fiat means command. So the government commands you to accept that little bit of paper which says that it's worth $5, as being worth $5. You are commanded by the government to accept it, even though the government itself doesn't have the gold behind it. So that's the third era in which we're, and that's where we're now living, in this era of what's called the fiat currency. We're off the gold standard, and so we're now in this era of fiat currency. It's a new era into which we have moved. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter, who's talking about money today and the history of money and why money is important and how it makes the world go round and all sorts of things. We're finding out an incredibly fascinating history. Keith, why is this right now, why is the government printing a lot more money in the coronavirus era? Because the government is having to print extra money simply to keep people employed. There is now talk of a global depression. Not a recession. We had that with the global financial crisis, although Australia, thanks to China, escaped the, 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 what the Americans call the Great Recession of 2008-2009. We escaped it, but the Americans suffered terribly, as did the British, well, you know, or the whole of, of Western Europe, etc. Now there is talk of there actually being a Great Recession. So in other words, we're thinking back to where we were in the 1930s when a third of the Australian workforce was unemployed. 
so that that is the speculation. So the government has a way now of coping with this. In the 1930s, governments at the time were very limited in how they thought about the economy. And so remember, they were locked into the gold standard at that time. And they said, look, we can't print extra money. And so there's a shortage of money in circulation. You've got to have money circulating. It's got to move from one person's pocket to another to keep people employed. So the 1930s recession, depression, was made far worse, in my view, than it could have been. A British economist called John Maynard Keynes, who was at Cambridge, Maynard, John Maynard Keynes argued that during a depression or recession, a government should put extra money into circulation by employing people. So get them building bridges and roads, hospitals, etc. And that's how the British and the Americans got out of it. Now, the Americans separately came to their own idea. It was called the, the New Deal, but it was basically the same. So the United States got into the business of planting trees. They employed photographers or people planting trees. <laughs> you know, they were running a photographic agency. The New Deal was fantastic. And it gradually in the 1930s got people out of that Great Depression. Of course, from 1933 onwards in Germany, Hitler was preparing for war. But he also did enable people to buy the people's car, what is called the Volkswagen. So he was actually encouraging people to buy uh, their own little automobile as well. So we, we, we gradually crept out of that Great Depression and then we moved ahead even more rapidly because of World War II. And so suddenly governments realised we can now print money to keep people employed. And for those of us who were born right after World War II, we won the first prize in the lottery of life. So we got that boom period from 1945 until 1973 when the whole thing started to fall apart. But we got that, that great time in which to, to live because the governments were then intervening in the economy, they were subsidising things. Even here in the Australian government, with a, con with a Conservative government under Menzies, we were, well, Menzies' great achievement was that he put so much money into universities, expanded free university education. It's worth bearing in mind when Labor came to power, they decided to charge students for it. But under Menzies, it was a free educational system. So the government now in, in Australia and in the United Kingdom, or the UK, has been far more radical. It's a conservative government, but it's behaving like a bunch of socialists, but good on them. You know, they're actually underwriting people's salaries just to keep the money in circulation. The great fear is that people will not be able to pay their rent or they'll pay the rent, but they won't have food and they'll be malnourished, their health will decline, and they will be more vulnerable to the coronavirus, which is why governments are looking at ways of trying to increase the amount of money that is in circulation. Uh, we've seen some measures, uh, which are unprecedented really uh, in the last few years in Australia by a Conservative government, um, and my hand is that we will see even more measures coming on stream. Otherwise, we plunge into another Great Depression. Well, and also on that point, Keith, I mean, there was a lot of criticism about the stimulus package in during the financial crisis, but now we're seeing the government do the same thing again. That was the Labor government back there that did it. Let me just say that in the United States, when they had the, you know, it started in the United States with subprime, subprime crisis, the president at the time, Obama, wanted to follow the Australian example and couldn't. The Republicans wouldn't let him. They saved the banks, but they didn't stray, save us the American citizens. Whereas here in Australia, the, the advice to the Australian government from the Reserve Bank was go hard, 
go early, go household. And so all of us in households received sums of money to go out and spend, which we did, and we saved the Australian economy. So it was the early intervention by the Rudd government plus the continuing boom in China that kept us afloat. And that that turned out to be um, very useful for us, but we're going to need an even greater amount of money flowing into the economy now. And look, you know, this um, episode could could completely date and things changing so quickly in this particular coronavirus, but when this episode goes to air, there have been a, a number of issues, um, sorry, measures that have been announced by the federal government, a lot of stimulus packages, a lot of being, money being made available to those who will potentially have lost their jobs or will lose their jobs in this climate. And then also rental assistance, so went being guaranteed by the federal government, I think it is. I, don't, I could be wrong on that. No, they're still looking at that and how they will do that. But that is certainly what they need to do. And that's what they're looking at in Britain at the moment. How do you guarantee the rent, the guaranteeing salaries? In other words, the government's nationalising the economy, if you think about it. It's what they, that's what they did in the days of the Soviet Union. And it's what they've done in China, in effect, uh, since 1949. And so we, we are having to go to that system as well, but it's a drastic measure because if you tell people don't go to work, what are they going to do? They're not going to get any money. And that you're right. And so the stimulus won't end here. What else has to happen, Keith, for us to survive the next six months as a you know, our economy to survive? Because at the moment it feels like countries like Sweden have chosen their economy over the people. You know, yep. They've gone for the herd, sort of spreading it through and everyone will build up natural immunity. We haven't obviously gone for that, but we're trying to strike a balance between the two. What needs to happen to save our economy at this point? Well, if the Australian government is restricting economic activity, which I think is basically the right way to go, if you look at President Trump, he's resisting that because it'll plunge the country even to a great recession. But it means that if you go down that route, which I support, then you've got to put more money into the economy. An obvious basic one, which we'll need to look at at some point, is a universal basic income. In other words, guaranteeing every citizen a basic sum of money. This is one of the ideas that I've been proposing mm. for some years. For those of us who are already working, that money will go back as taxation. But there'll be others who'll be helped to be kept afloat by a universal basic income. That's one of the emerging new ideas. Well before the coronavirus struck, mm. a number of us were talking about this because of what robots are going to do to people's employment. You've got to find a way of keeping money in circulation. We're back to the same basic problem. You've got to keep the money circulating. It's got to move from your pocket to my pocket to your pocket. It's got to be circulating. If, if the money stops circulating, the economy crashes. So as the saying goes, money makes the world go round, Keith. Thank you. It does, right? Absolutely. This has been Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. It's recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Producer is me, Kate Mack. Production assistance by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. And for more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the Podcast One Australia app.